0: We were finishing off in Psalm 51 last week on page 26, so (coughs) I was trying to point out, I think verse 17 in Psalm 51, that's that's a clear verse on what repentance is, repentance is a broken and a contrite heart. God says he won't despise that. If it's a true broken and contrite heart. I recall when Bill Clinton used Psalm 51. But may I say, I don't think he had a true broken and contrite heart. At least that's what his wife says. So, so I've, I've seen people use this, but you know this has got to grow out of a heart that's genuinely contrite. So people can quote it all they want. David's not referring to that. He's referring to a spirit that is genuinely broken. So that's verse 17. Let's move over to page 27. And notice finally, David's vow to praise God. <coughs> Get my place here. Notice uh, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will turn back to you. Now, notice it's interesting. In the first twelve verses, he reflects, he prayed for God's mercy, he confesses his sin, he looks so it's this rich in cleansing that when appropriated by faith is effectual. Verse thirteen, it's the result of when somebody truly does confess sin. Notice verse thirteen. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Notice he invokes another prayer, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. But notice the prayer there, Save me from blood guilt. So David's sin is more than just adultery, David's sin is tied to blood guilt because he was really the one responsible for uh, Bathsheba's husband being killed. He's the one that gave the command. He may not have been at the battlefront, but he gave the command and they executed it. And her husband, can I say, was innocently killed. So he is blood guilty. So he ask God to cleanse him from that. <clears throat> and uh, if God does that, his tongue will sing of your righteousness. So I think when we repent, you know, we can check ourselves out. Do we really want to tell people how Jesus saves? How he forgives us our sin, even as believers? I think we should. I don't know that everybody has as good of an ability to articulate it. But there's got to be a desire, at least. David has that desire. And notice also, his, uh, he's going to sing of your righteousness. So he's going to praise God. Well, I think we should do that, too. I... Uh, Some people are more reserved than others. I recognize that. Uh, You know, I'm not a great testifying person. Uh, But I think that's... It's not that I don't want to. Just those spur of the moment things just don't work. I mean, I usually make a donkey of myself, so... (laughs) Anyway, I'm more reserved, but I shouldn't be that way. But the desire is there. And I think we all should at least have the desire. Notice also he says, O oh Lord, open my lips and my tongue will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice as I would bring it to you. You do not take pleasure in your burnt offering. Then he gives us what the repentance is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. So notice, that's the vow to praise God, but the result is is there's going to be some type of tangible expression of his thankfulness. He's, he's going to truly praise God in the midst of it. So that's a good thing. I think that should tell us sometimes whether we really were truly repentant. Now I think uh, somebody said it was by Jim Pantelli. Or maybe, yeah. yeah, it was that. How do we know when to truly repent? Only time will tell. I suspect with most people, their life is a series of repentance. You know, you look at the habitual sins that people fall into. Maybe we don't have some of the habitual sins, but there are some serious ones out there. I do know that people have fallen one time and twice, and I've seen it repeatedly. But, you know, they. I really need to keep on calling out to God for forgiveness. And in most cases, in the long run, somewhere it does seem like it kicks in. I know some cases where it never kicks in, and you have to wonder, where did they ever, were they ever really genuine? Well, that does happen. But I know some outstanding examples where it has happened. And we should rejoice with them, and we should rejoice because We are sinful as them. We may not commit the same sins. But, you know, my heart's been filled with deceit, uh, road rage, uh, anger. I I think probably one of the biggest battles for many men is the issue of anger. Uh, In fact, I heard John Piper say the greater battle for men than lust. By the way, that was number two. But anger was the top one. And lo and behold, it was the same for women. Well, <laughs> I don't think they were quite as public as the men. But, I mean, we all, to a degree, do that. And if it's not right, it is sinful. So, we're not better than anybody else. So, we should always recognize that uh, we don't want to look down on people who continually fall back into sin. We need to help them as much as we can and see them move along and pray for them. And there are occasions, I've known uh, some people that I've known for years, that have fallen into sin and eventually repented and seem to be growing still today. Uh, That's not that frequent, but I have seen it happen. So, we should rejoice with that. Thus the conclusion of the psalm in verses 18 and 19 I mentioned this before, but don't lose sight of this. David's king of Israel. So it's hard at the end turns to the city. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Well, when you're king, you would think once you deal with your own personal guilt, it should turn to that where you're responsible. And David's does. He's his concerned with the city. He says, Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So it ends up with his concern for Jerusalem and for the nation, which is to be expected since he is king. So uh, that's Psalm 51. There's a few other tangential things we'll look at. But now, are there any questions on us going over that? I've spent a little bit of time, because this is the most theologically significant psalm in telling us what it was like to be an Old Testament believer in the sense. Yes, Wes? When when he says you don't, to the Lord, he says you don't desire sacrifice. Okay. He's talking about a preference, right? I mean, because in, in the Old Testament... No, he's mosaic, not doing away with sacrifice. Because in the Old Testament Mosaic Law that was very much spelled out for the people of Israel. They, for sins they, and exact things of what to do and how to do it, and offering particular sacrifices. See, I think what he's sins. getting to is what's the primary what, issue. What's the primary issue, right? So that's his concern. The primary issue is that we have this broken and contrite heart. But in Israel, in fact, David prays that sacrifices will be offered in Jerusalem, so he hasn't thrown aside the sacrificial system. <coughs> So, no, that's exactly right. Okay, uh, let's notice point B. I point out some other penitential psalms. Notice the content of Psalm 51. I've reduced the message of Psalm 51 into uh, one sentence. When confronted with the reality of our sinfulness and the resulting alienation it creates between us and God, heartfelt repentance, is the only acceptable response that, God, a response that results in God's forgiveness and cleansing. Um, I understand that all God's regenerate people <coughs> will have this expression. Sometimes I think we find out who wasn't regenerated. But if they're really regenerated, this has to happen. It's inevitable. Uh, I mentioned <coughs> how I see two basic movements here, and I give a brief outline of the psalm. I, I preached I've got three messages on Psalm 51. And uh, I go through verses 1 to 6, and 7 to 12, and then verses 13 to 19. I have one long message on it that's an hour and 15 to 20 minutes long. People don't like that. I loved it. Uh, can I say, I am my favorite preacher? <laughs> Ken Brown is his favorite preacher. <laughs> but what would you think of your pastor if he really didn't want to preach the Word? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Tell him to go home and pack it in and go back to computers. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would do. I know our pastor. <laughs> he loves to hear himself speak. <clears throat> uh, he's interested in what he has to say. I'd rather hear myself than either Pastor Dorn or Pastor Brown. <laughs> because. I want to preach the Word. That doesn't mean I'm the best to articulate it, but it means if I'm not interested in it, nobody else is going to be. So you've got to have that type of desire, or nobody else will be interested in it. So I like the hour and 15 minute message myself, that's my wife who's the problem, she (laughs) says break it down. (laughs) So that's what I've tried to do. So, But it is rich, and hopefully you can develop this in some of your Bible studies and stuff like that because it is an important psalm. Now, psalm, one, psalm 51 is an intriguing psalm. Most people are interested in it. Most people are not interested in Psalm 137, though, but we should be. This is called an imprecatory psalm. Now, I choose this. There are a number of precatory psalms. But I choose this psalm because it has something that distresses people in our culture the most. Verses 8 and 9. Uh, Happy is he who repays you for what you've done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's hard to grapple with it's hard for me to grapple with. But it is in the Bible. So there's got to be more going on than just a psalmist personal revenge. So, by the way, what is one way that you eliminate uh, enemy combatants in a culture? Kill everybody. That way they don't take up the sword again. So, it doesn't sound nice to our American sensibilities. However, Islam believes it. And that's just the reality. They if they would, they would dash arguments against the rocks. Here, I think we only can invoke God for that type of thing, not ourselves. But I say this just so you won't wipe me out and say he has nothing to say on this. What we do want to go through is we do want to see (coughs) what the imprecatory psalms are like. The word imprecation refers to an invoking of divine curses or judgments against one's enemies. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I thought we'd be in Psalm 137 last week, but in Galatians, Galatians 1, Paul prays that those who preach another gospel let them be a curse. Friends, that's an imprecation. He's saying... I'm invoking God's judgment on those who preach another gospel. So, this is not just an Old Testament thing. That's my point. It, is, it does have a significance for the New Testament. Because Paul praises, and I don't want to say that something he does is unbiblical. I mean, he was a living New Testament. So, uh, and I do think it is interesting. He's in a very specific context. About somebody preaching a false gospel. He's not talking about preaching this against a politician, our neighbor who bothers us. He's very precise. It's somebody who's an enemy of the gospel. So I think that's very reserved. But I think there are enemies of the gospel, and I think when they do hinder the spread of the gospel, I always pray, God forgive them, convert them for I pray that you judge him." So, I do know believers in India do pray that. So I've been there and I've heard them it, because <laughs> there are some real enemies of the Gospel. So, it's an interesting dynamic, but we do want to see how that's developed here. And since this is the one that, the song that most people react to most violently, I'm concerned that we get it back in our Bible, because it has some good theology here. On page 28, I point out a couple questions. Is it ever right for us to pray that God brings judgments upon our enemies? Well, I've answered that with Galatians 1. Very restrictive cases. I believe some of this tension is resolved if we understand the purposes of the imprecatory elements in the Old Testament literature and the theological foundation for these imprecations. So we need to understand why they're prayed, the purpose, And then what the foundation is. What then are the purposes of invoking a curse on a Bible writer's enemies? One heretical error we should avoid is to assume that a curse was produced by human error or fallibility. I have heard some liberal preachers say this was not right and it ought to be taken away from the Bible. That's a bad view. Another view is to say that this is this is human error. Well, that goes with those saying it ought to be eliminated from the Bible. That's what they believe. Um, and since I was raised a uh, United Presbyterian, I do know preachers who would say that. So that's not right. By the way, I got converted out of it, just in case there's your doubt. Um, but... According to this type of understanding, the purpose for an imprecation is found in man's depravity. Not a writer's desire to see God's justice vindicated. As such, the imprecations have no validity for normative truth." That's what they said. To follow this type of reasoning would be disastrous for biblical inherency. You all understand inerrancy relates to the autographs. Uh, I have the NIV. I hold this up and I say it's the Word of God. I can hold up an ESV say it's the Word of God. I can hold up a NASB. I can hold up a King James Version. Not sure what all that means, but that's the Word of God. Any translations that are soberly translating the autographs, they're the Word of God. However, I never hold up my NIV and say this is the inerrant word of God. Inerrancy always re- re- relates to what was originally written. have two key doctrines. Inspiration, that's dealing with the written text, God superintended, so that using the individual personalities of the authors, they composed and recorded in the words of the autographs. God's revelation for man. That's an important distinction. So we believe in inspiration, and we believe in inerrancy. Inerrancy means when the book, like the book of uh, Psalms is a little bit harder, but when all the Psalms are finally put in one book, I would say that was an inerrant book. Now, once that begins the process of transmission, I would not say that uh, the transmitted Copies are inerrant. We can take those and we can recover the originals. But inerrancy in discussions about the Bible, they're called bibliology discussions. That's always reserved for the autographs. But yet I do hear King James only people saying the King James is inerrant. Never bite on that. I never say a translation is inerrant. I'll say it's the Word of God. But I wouldn't say it's an error. So that's in discussions about the Bible. That's been used to talk about the autographs. So we need to understand what we mean by that. But I do think this is the authoritative word of God. And I think that's what Paul... Paul uses the word of God in the book of Acts to talk about their oral proclamations of the gospel. Some written sources they read that apparently Paul wrote uh, those are the Word of God, but He doesn't call them the inerrant Word of God. Well, I think because the Word of God's more general, <clears throat> I could say when I'm preaching the gospel and I preach it accurately, that's the Word of God. I can say that when you do that, but the inerrancy relates to what's written. So that's a very, very important distinction to make. So you ought to know that. Uh, all your additional questions to see Pastor Brown. We call him the Bible Answer Man. <laughs> and you can go help him. <laughs> so, if if that view's right, that this is simply relies with the fallible mind of man, then that means there is errors. Going back to the originals, because those statements were made, that's, that's a tremendous problem if we're to have authority in our Bibles. So, that's a mistake. This type of reasoning is erroneous for for Bible-believing Christians. How in agreement with biblical inerrancy, we can see at least five specific purposes that the Bible writers of imprecatory Psalms communicated. We want to take a look at each of these. First of all, look, the first purpose is to establish the righteous. Look at Psalm seven, six to eleven. <coughs> Psalm seven, six to eleven. Notice he prays and precatorily at points to establish the righteous. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake my God decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you. Will over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. O righteous God who searches minds and hearts. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked, and make the righteous secure. Notice there, he, he is trying to say, we need to take care of the righteous with this implication. Verse 10, my shield is God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. So one of the purposes, I understand, for praying imprecations is to establish the righteous. Uh, you know, in China, they, they pray these psalms time to time because of persecution. Uh, I think if we lived there and we were persecuted, you might be praying an imprecation on a vile uh, national leader just to protect the people of God. Well, I wouldn't say that that's sinful. I would say at that point that uh, they are representing what gospel truth stands for, and they do want to see the people of God grow. So I don't know that we understand that because we're not in a persecuted land. But I do know in India they even have those things from time to time. Uh, let's see, The first time I went to India was in 2003, then again in 2004 And when I went in 2003, I'll never forget Daniel Kumar. He said, we're not going to have you do any open-air meetings this year. He said, the missionary was here. And he made it sound like it was yesterday then, but it turns out it was a few years back from Australia. And uh, some, I think it was Muslims, came in and they killed the guy. They had swords and they went in. And the Indian government wouldn't go after him. Well, that's not Christian government. I mean, it does not have any semblance of Judeo-Christian ethic. Well, that happens. He has another missionary story where, uh, in order to save himself, he was waving his hands. And he, he lost his hands because of the swords. So we have a very easy... But there are people all over the world... Who are being persecuted for Christ? When I have a Chinese person ask me, "Do you think it's okay to pray in precatory psalms?" And I said, "All depends on the case. If if they are using this to thwart the gospel, to hinder it, I would pray. And I would say I also think we can pray to protect the people of God. So that is a valid purpose, but." You know, I have—I mean, I have no concept of what the suffering is. But every time I've gone over to the area of China, with the exception of this past year, we'll teach Chinese house church leaders for one week. I do biblical creationism. Then other people come to seminary and go. But they always tell us tes- their testimonies in the evening, and every year except for this last year. Uh, somebody's been in prison somebody who went by the code name Moses he had been in prison twice the second time he was in prison his wife had also been in prison at the same time he, uh, let's see, I think his wife yeah, I think he got out first but in the release of his wife she died well, friend, that's hard that's really hard but their persecution was because of their commitment to Christ. So we live in a very, uh, how would I say, secure land in one way. We don't have those forces. However, if we keep on voting like we do, that may change. So, uh, I don't want to be too political though. I know on my Twitter account I tweet all the time about politics. I don't. I don't do it on my blog. However, i got some things on my blog about that, too. So I'm not politically correct, and that's not my goal. But I am concerned about us losing our liberties. And that's what distresses me. Like. And I don't think that relates to health care, although I'm opposed to it. But to me, there's bigger issues involved here. To me, a major one is abortion. That doesn't on it. It is a sin before God Almighty to be letting these unborn children die every day. If I think about it too long, I can get tears in my eyes. You go to the internet and you look at these unborn babies, friends, they're fully human. How can you say these are? Ju- this is just tissue? Well maybe some can. I don't think you and I could. Because we believe the Bible, but I even think for somebody who's lost and has no claims of Christianity, I think they can see those internet pictures and see that they're human. That is, that is an atrocity. So I am praying that that stops in healthcare, and it is on the basis of what is righteous and what's not righteous to continue. Now, by the way, I'm not arguing that you go out and kill anybody. I, I don't believe that at all. I think we have to always strive legally. But friends, this is a great wickedness. And I think we're the worst nation in the world at it. At least that's what someone from Britain told me. But <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but when I think about that, that, I mean, that does affect us. And unfortunately, I hear Christians want to academicize this and Flaunted about, and it just it grieves my heart. Um, I know people at Intercity Baptist Church who do the same thing, they just move to another issue. Friends, I am hung up about the abortions. That was a major issue why I voted the way I did. And it is a major issue why I put some things on my blog that I did. So I don't care if they come after me on this point. We need to take a stand for Christ. We may not suffer persecution. Now, maybe I'll be forced to take my blog down. I mean, I can live with that type of persecution. <laughs> but I primarily do biblical issues. Oh, yeah, abortion is a biblical issue. So I'm consistent. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, doesn't, doesn't that affect your righteous soul? I mean, these are, these are helpless, relatively innocent kids. They have not done a sin, writer, they have not sinned, they have not done any good. They are completely helpless. The difference between them and us is they don't have the capability of complaining. So, it, I mean, it is a very distressing thing. But I thank God for the grace of God, because He forgives people even when they've fallen into things like that. But I think we should avoid, with our government, promoting that. That That's just terrible. Well, anyway, I don't want to get too carried away on that, but uh, if you go to China, that's an acceptable practice. If you come here, it's an acceptable practice. It should not be for God's people. Well, sec- the second purpose is to bring praise to God when the psalmist has been delivered from the wicked. Look at Psalm 7 just drop down again to verse 17 I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and sing, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high now notice this is in the context of the implications given earlier in the psalm his point is that uh, this will bring praise to God uh, look also at psalm 35.18 There are a number of psalms we can pick out, but let me just highlight a couple here. When the psalmist has been delivered, he's going to praise God. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. Among throngs of people, I will praise you. Now, if you go back earlier in the psalm, this is what I call an individual lament that has some precatory elements. He's praying a judgment of God. If God does deliver him, what he says in verse 18 will be true. God will be praised. Also number three, to bring recognition that God rewards the righteous and judges the wicked. Look at Psalm 58 verse 11. Another imprecatory psalm. Psalm 58 11. This is the final verse, verse 11. Then men will, sh- will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. So notice this is in context, verse 10 the righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Well, that's wrong. But he says, uh, in the end, this God's going to reward the righteous and judge the wicked. Now, who are the righteous? Those who are redeemed by God's grace. David doesn't mean they're perfect. Remember, he wrote Psalm 51. So he's talking about people who have been saved and are growing in grace. If they're not perfect. So sometimes referred to. Uh, Perfect ones, but that's really not precise. They're called upright. They have integrity. Those are better terms to use. So, none of these terms mean somebody sinless. It means that somebody who's saved and grown in <coughs> grace. Nothing more, nothing less. Also, for the wicked, that they will be judged. Uh, maybe I should ask you a question. Or maybe I shouldn't get you to answer. <laughs> When the wicked are cast in the hell, is there a sense that God is satisfied with his justice? Wouldn't you have to say it is? If you think about it for a moment, who, who was our justice? Christ. He paid a price for our sins. What we deserve... He took the suffering for us and died for us. So justice was exacted in the Son. But, friends, if not exacted in the Son and they're lost, then God's got to satisfy His justice in eternity. See, it only takes, uh, well, people don't understand. God seems to be a harsh God because if somebody just sins once that means you're going to burn in hell. Well, I don't think we understand who we're sinning against. God is infinite. That means every infraction against Him has an infinite price. When Christ died on the cross for us, He paid an infinite price. So, I look back to the cross and I thank God for the justice That he took for me. In him, my sins were judged. Now, for the wicked, that's not the case. So, God will spend all eternity, can I say, getting his pound of flesh out of them? Because they didn't recognize sin has an infinite price. So, to me, that has major significance. So, don't look too hard on the psalmist when he talks about. He'll be glad when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. I think he's looking at it at the standpoint: God's justice has to be satisfied. So, that's the key of the gospel. Well, notice the fourth purpose: to show God's sovereignty over all creation. Look at Psalm 59:13. This is another lament psalm with an with an precatory element. but let me just cut to the chase. Verse 13 For the curses and the lies they utter consume them in wrath consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Notice This shows God's sovereignty over all creation. And then the final purpose we see in Psalm 69, 28. (coughs) This is to prevent the wicked from benefiting from the same blessings as the people of God. The wicked should not get the same blessings as the people of God, at least in the end. Psalm 69, 28 Summon your power, O oh God. Show us your strength, O oh God, as you have done before. Uh, this is going to prevent the wicked from getting the same blessings as the people of God. Uh, use all your power, your strength. Now this is another us. song. We need to go through the whole... Story. No, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong one. I'm trying to figure out. What's it saying here? It doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, well, that's my first mistake for tonight. Oh, I'm sorry. I had some more before I came. <laughs> uh, Psalm 69:28. Okay, this makes much better sense. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and not be listed with the righteous. I'm in pain and distress. May your salvation of God protect me. So, here's the case where uh, David's praying that the wicked won't benefit from the blessings as the people God. Anyway, sorry about the mistake, but if you're around me much, I make them all the time. I do it to test my wife. I tell my Hebrew class, I do it to test them. See if they're still awake. <laughs> so we see the five purposes, but we need to probably more importantly see the theological basis for the preparatory Psalms. With this, we want to turn back to Genesis 12. What is the theological foundation for a biblical writer invoking God's judgment on God's enemies? Is there a theological foundation You know, in our houses, sometimes we're concerned about the superstructure that looks good. I mean, I like it when it looks good. But you know what's more important than my, my superstructure? foundation. So, this is the foundation for the implications. Look at Genesis 12. We have some promises given to Abraham. The Lord has said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And notice what God promises him in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now that's interesting, isn't it? God says to Abram, whoever curses you, I'll curse them. You know what we see in the book of Genesis working out? Remember the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah? They trifled with Abram. The kings of the east did. What happened? Abram defeated them. What well, we can see in the book of Genesis that works out from here on out, those who treat Abram lightly get judged. Those who bless him get blessed. Lot, not one of the most spiritual guys in the church. <laughs> well, they didn't have a church. But he wasn't the, he wasn't the dynamic preacher. He, I mean, you wonder if he's a Christian if it wasn't for the New Testament. Wow, he's not a Christian. He couldn't, Jesus wasn't a Christian. Uh, you didn't, did you not realize that Jesus was not a Christian? He was Jesus. He, he was the Christ. But Christians weren't in the Old Testament. It's probably better to call them believers, uh, saints. But <clears throat> with those people, They, as the book of Genesis works out, those who bless Abram and his people, they get blessed. So just read that and see how those motifs carry out, because it is very interesting. Now, my point is, when we go back here, these promises become part of Genesis 15. These are carried over. And in Genesis 15 we have the Abrahamic Covenant. It's what some will call an unconditional covenant. It means when it was set up, Abram didn't have to fulfill any conditions. Uh, I think many today just call them promissory covenants. They're covenants that give promises without any attachments to Abram. So people, I think, understand promissory more than they do unconditional. But Unconditional, I don't think that's difficult. It means Abram did not have to do anything to get the blessing. It's a promissory covenant. So here in Genesis 12, 3, going back to Genesis 12, when it gives the promises that are brought over into the covenant in Genesis 15, this one about cursing those who curse you, that's very significant. Because that does give us a foundation. How do you pray? What's the basis for praying in precatory songs? Genesis 12. God said He would curse those who curse Abram. Now, by the way, for me to set your hearts at ease, I don't think that's going on today. I don't think there's any blessing if Christians support Israel in a greater way. Now, by the way, I am on Israel's side. But I hear this a lot in churches, and people are usually shocked when I say, you know, it does seem to me that uh, God has, has sovereignly blessed us. We have watched after Israel. I think that's been a good political arrangement. Israel could teach us a lot of things about air travel. So I'm not opposed to Israel, but I do hear this thing, and I think Jerry Falwell in the old-time Gospel Hour he really promoted it. But if we take care of Israel, God's going to bless us. Friends, that was truth of the Old Testament. Once they crucify Christ, all bets are off. Now Israel will be there standing at the end, but I don't think that we give them any special breaks because they're Israel. Now I think we honor our covenants with them, but they are pagan people of God. They've rejected Christ. He has been clearly been proclaimed. They've turned their back on Him. So, I'm not saying they're going to be removed from the land, but they can have trouble. They're not invincible. Remember, friends, they've rejected the Christ. So how can we expect them to get the blessings? Well, if you're doing some end around the run where they don't have to be regenerated, you better go back and look at your Bible more carefully. So I don't want to get carried away on blessing Israel. So I think that's over when the Old Covenant's finished in the Old Testament. Yes, please. So you, would, so you would not say that the 8th Air Force, the RAF, and the Soviet Army were the instrumentality of, of cursing of the Third Right? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Well, fact, I don't think... Uh, now, in God's providence, it works, at work, so don't misunderstand. In God's providence, he was at work. But I don't think uh, any of our faculty members of Detroit see any special blessing for Israel today. In fact, I think we've gone on record as saying we don't see that as the case. So we are questioned a lot about it. So I just don't see biblically. I mean, this is many, many Israelites are uh, agnostic at best. But, you know, they're God deniers. So how can I say God's blessing is on them? Well, God's preserving them because He will regenerate them in the tribulation. And they will go into the kingdom. But right now, they're living under the hand of God's judgment. So, anyway, just so, you know, I don't go too far with this. I just see this as in the Old Testament. I, once they crucify Christ, I think all bets are off at that point. they rejected the Messiah. They're, so, just,
1: they're just like all of us at this like <coughs> right.
0: yeah. And I think the strongest reason we, we should be kind to Israel, we've got some <coughs> covenants. We need to honor those who we have covenant right. arrangements with. That's the only reason I see that we should take care of them. Yes, Kim? Wouldn't we also just use the verse
1: that said in Romans, not all of Israel are Israel? Right? Well, okay. not
0: all Israel is Israel. Right. That's the verse I would use.
1: Yeah.
0: So, not all the nation of Israel. Is regenerate Israel. And that's what we see today. So, but I think we do need to get this monkey off our back because people think God's going to take his hand of blessing off us because Obama is really treating the Arabs better than the Jews. Now, I think it's politically stupid, though. Mm-hmm. But to me, our best ally has been Israel and how could we solve our airline problems with terrorism? Bring in the Israelis to advise us. They've got the best system in the world. And I don't think they have body scanners. (laughs) Something with, I have have some real... Well, they better not do that to my wife, (laughs) that's all I'm saying. (laughs) But I guess we wouldn't be flying, would we? But, you know, it it does seem to me we have political arrangements with them. We need to honor that, like we do with anybody. But I think God may... Well, I don't know if He's going to destroy us, but we're going to become a lesser power if we continue the way we are. The reason why the Russians have become a dominant power is because of gas, oil. Remember how they were moving backwards? Well, they've ratcheted up their oil wells. And they can control the oil supply. How could we do it? Friends, we're sitting on the largest oil reserves in the world. And because of those, oh, this is some mixed audience I not say it. Because of those ruthless Congress people, ours are all tied up. So we're going to go with this cap and trade. To me, this is one of the biggest, stupidest idiotic. Well, my granddaughter told me, idiots like swearing.
1: <laughs> so I shouldn't
0: say that. No, <laughs> so that's what they told me. I said somebody was idiotic, and and she's seven years old, and she says, Papa, you're not supposed to say that. That's a bad word. <laughs> and I said, well, what's that? The Russians are also buying up all the gold. Right, right, right. It, you know, it is scary. I mean, it really is scary. You know, and I don't personally think John McCain would have solved their problem. But I do think we could use someone like Ronald Reagan again. So, but I think we need God. I think, most of all, we need to pray to Him. Pray that He protects us. Pray that somehow our government's able to get influence to the right. I'm not talking about financials, I'm talking about morally. And I think if we get the moral right, I think some of the other things are going to fall <laughs> in line. But when you're humanistic, evolutionary, no wonder we're in this situation. Evolution is an assault to God Almighty. But yet, Israelis are bought into that. So, they may hold on to a few more things than we do, but, friends, it's not a good state. So, will I be surprised if there's another 9 11? No, not at, all. not at all. In fact, uh, I know my son before Obama was elected, uh, the Phoenix police officers, they were going through special training about a half a year to a month before for fighting terrorists because they saw the handwriting on the wall. I mean, he said, because they anticipate Obama's going to be elect- elected, we need to ratchet up our training. So he's been. He's been equipped in how to handle terrorist strikes. I hope they've done it in Detroit. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure, though. I'm not need a human there. I mean, yeah. It's those things in life that uh, are there. I think we have to accept the sovereignty of God. God put us in this situation because this is what we deserve. But I think now is the time for the people of God to rise up Voice your opinion, you know. I'm not asking anybody to do stupid things and try to shoot anybody or but you know, voice your opposition. How do you get fried? You just remain passive and quiet. And if we do that, we're gonna to continue to get what we deserve. And as long as Nancy's out there sounding like a witch, <laughs> that just driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you, you think that the country could be under a curse, but the church is still under the blessing. That's right. However, there was a strong church in China when the communists took over. Yep. Uh, there were a lot of a, a lot of Presbyterian works were over there. I mean, I'm not talking about liberal Presbyterian, Bible-believing Presbyterians. There were Baptist groups there. I worked for Jim Eisenbrunn in Warsaw, Indiana. He has a bookstore. Eisenbrunn, his parents are German, but they were both converted. They were missionaries in China. Uh, So they, uh, because of their German background, they knew German, and they learned Mandarin. Uh, And they had some vivid descriptions of what happened. There was a strong Christian testimony. But notice, God didn't answer their prayer, at least the way they wanted. So I mean, I agree with you, God's going to take care of the church, mm-hmm. but sometimes the church has to suffer. Well, even in Matthew, it says the church, you know, the people would be persecuted, mm-hmm. and they kind of, they a blessing to be persecuted, because sure. it's so good. However, I don't want to help us get that way. <laughs> I want to fight the good fight, and it's not the good, mm-hmm. I guess it's a good fight of faith to help prevent that. But uh, that's how good people end up being hurt. They do nothing. So in principle, I agree, God's going to take care of His church no matter what. But woe be to us when we just become passive surrender, and roll over and play dead. So anyway, don't go home and pray these imprecatory prayers of Nancy tonight.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not advocating that, <laughs> well, so anyway, now that I've blown that puppy on the water, about this real well, anyway, let's uh so here, notice we see the foundations in the Abrahamic covenant. Under the Old Testament economy, God enriched those who blessed Abram and God judged those who cursed Abram. When Balaam attempted to curse Israel and subsequently used his inclusivism to corrupt Israel Numbers 22 and 24 and 31, God brought a curse on him. The same thing was true of the Midianites in Numbers 31. Based upon the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, David had a biblical right as the representative of the nation to pray that God would effect what He had promised, cursing on those who cursed or attacked Israel. David's enemies were a great threat to the well-being of Israel. The cries for judgment in the imprecatory Psalms are appealed for Yahweh to carry out His judgment against those who would curse the nation. Judgment in accordance with the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. In effect, the psalmist choosing implications were legitimately applying the covenant curses. Now, this is a place to pause tonight, but I am often asked about Bob Jones, Jr. When, uh, who did he pray the Precatory Psalms against? Uh, oh, the Jewish guy uh, who was in uh, Reagan's administration. Um, I think he's dead now. Well, you probably remember who was the Jewish guy who was in the Reagan administration? Was that Kissinger? Well, he did pray against Kissinger too. Yeah, and no, it was Kissinger. Yeah, so he, when when Bob Jones lost their ability to get VA benefits because of what I thought was an insane policy, um, they they lost their uh, government right to the tax-exempt institution. And so Bob Jones Jr. prayed these imprecatory songs against them. I'm often asked, because he's usually everywhere I go, there are people from Bob Jones. And they'll say, well, what about Bob Jr.? And I just say, he knows better now.
1: <laughs>
0: he's gone on to be with the Lord. <laughs> and I do, I mean, I think he was a good Christian man. We're all products of our culture. Just remember that. So, I don't say that to speak ill of them. I just don't think that was the right approach. A dispensationalist would not be saying that. So, I don't think we should just go out and do this loosely. I think this is only when the gospel being attacked. Anyway, well, this is a good place to stop. Same time next week.